We are uh, beginning a new series of messages today, so I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. That's page 1834, Colossians chapter 3. And we're beginning a series this morning on the Christian virtues, and hopefully you've been uh, taking note of that in your bulletins. We've sort of been advertising it. It's an all-church study, and so we're inviting our, our uh, life groups and individuals, really. If you'd like to study this topic with us, we've written up some materials. The first two weeks of those materials are available in the narthex on the bookshelves in the back. Uh, you're welcome to those. There are leaders' guides and participant guides as well. If you would like electronic versions, uh, please talk to Pastor Young Kwong or uh, call the office and we'll make sure that you can get electronic versions of those. But we'd like to uh, study this topic together. Um, it'll take us up to Thanksgiving. And uh, a wonderful topic it is to look at the life that God has called us to live in Jesus Christ. The passage that we're about to read is sort of uh, the key passage that we'll be looking at throughout the series, the foundational passage. And so let's, uh, let's look at that now. Again, page 1834. Uh, this is a letter of, of the Apostle Paul to the church. And uh, Colossians chapter 3, we'll read the first 14 verses. Since then, you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature— sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image, renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, there's a a show I sometimes watch on TV. It's called Counting Cars. 
It's about a guy in Las Vegas who owns a shop that rebuilds old cars, fancy cars, all of that sort of stuff. And when I say rebuild, I actually mean reconstruct, okay? This is the kind of place where they take a, a car apart bolt by bolt and they, they fabricate new metal and they upgrade the brakes and the engine to today's standards and they put a paint finish on that's, that's unbelievable so that the finished product, the finished car is basically better than it was when it was new. Better than new. In contrast to that, on Friday, I fixed uh, my old van. I put a new starter in it, and it starts again, for which I was very thankful, by the way. Actually, I was thrilled. There's still a multitude of things wrong with it, however, but in my mind, at least, it's fixed, right? It runs. It's fixed. Too often in the Christian life, I think we get those two things confused. I think too often it seems as if we believe that Jesus died and rose again to fix us. And he just wanted to get us running again, on the road again. And so we seem to be content when we're simply able to function. We're content when we start even though the air conditioner may not run and the check engine light is still on and the power doors really don't operate, but hey, we run. That's all that matters, right? That's the important thing. And then we read something like what the Apostle Peter writes to uh, the churches in his first letter, and he says something like this, Live such good lives among the pagans that when they see your good deeds... They glorify your God in heaven. Live such good lives. And those words, you hear them and you, you sort of sit up and you say, huh, I wonder if I missed something. I mean, that doesn't sound like Peter's saying, you know, live like, live like my old minivan that's held together with duct tape and bailing wire. That sounds more like more like, live like that 1972 Chevelle SS that's been totally reborn. It's been remade, reconstructed. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, and gentleness, and patience. What Paul is saying there is, you haven't been repaired in Christ. You've been resurrected in Christ. You've been remade. You've been raised from the ground up. The way the church has always said it is, you have been born again. And now live like it. Live like it. Somebody used an illustration not too long ago. It's a scene from an old movie called Moonstruck, where an older woman, her husband is away, and she meets a, a younger man who, 
walks her home from a restaurant, they've just had dinner together, and then suggests that they go into her house together. And she says to him, no, I, I, I can't do that. And he says, oh, you, you think somebody's home? And she says, no, the house is empty. You cannot come in because I know who I am. I know who I am. You see, this woman knows her identity. She knows that she is a married woman. And that's how she lives her life. And friends, in the same way, you and I have to know who we are. And who we are is not some old worn-out minivan that's okay to look at, but no one really wants to get inside to take a ride. Who we are is people of such unique and exquisite character and good deeds that our neighbors say, wow, wow, I didn't know that there were people like that. And as a result, they want to worship our God. Be who you are. That's what Paul is telling us. Put on these virtues and be who God has raised you up to be. Now, it would be great if the Bible um, said, you have been raised with Christ, because if we've been raised, that must mean that we were also dead at one time. But all of that would be in the past. You have been raised, you were dead, but now you are alive, and everything has changed, and everything is done. But that's not where the Bible stops. In fact, it keeps going. And the Bible then says, since you have been raised, and then you get to verse 5, and it says things like this, and so put to death things like sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed. And then in verse 12, and it says, and clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and all of those good, wonderful things. And, and what Paul is trying to get at and what Scripture is getting at, and you'll see this over and over and over again, is that dying and rising with Jesus Christ in one sense was a one-time thing. And it happened 2,000 years ago. We went down into the grave with Christ, and then when he walked out of the tomb, we walked out right behind him. It was a one-time thing. And yet, Paul is also saying, but it's more than a one-time thing. This, this pattern of Jesus needs to be imprinted on our lives so that this dying and rising happens again and again and again. It's got to happen over and over and over. It's this process that theologians call mortification and vivification. Mortification is putting your old self to death, taking out a contract on your old self, killing it, stopping it, making sure it's dead. Vivification is just the opposite. It's bringing that new self to life, breathing life into that new being over and over. And that's what we want to talk about in the rest of our time, this process of dying and rising, mortification 
and vivification. It's got to continue happening in our lives. So let's talk about that. First, let's think about mortification just for a little while. This is something that I'm not so sure we take seriously enough today. I mean, think of a cancer patient who has been healed, okay? She's told that all of her cancerous cells are dead and gone. And yet, three months later, she still submits to that first PET scan, right? That, that cell-by-cell search to see if anything that was dead has come back to life. And friends, it's with that same urgency and that same vigilance that we should be examining our own spiritual lives to see if any of that old junk that we thought was dead and gone, that old junk like greed and malice and slander, to see any, if any of it's come back if any of it's come to life again. Uh, I think we may see this, this best in our children. Um, I said this a few weeks ago at a baptism, that this is one of uh, the tasks that Christian parents um, have in the lives of their baptized children. Okay? In the Reformed faith, we say that when we baptize a child, a parent's faith can stand in for the faith of that child for a time, right? Until that child meets an age of discretion and, and they can make their own sorts of decisions, the faith of the parent has to stand in for the faith of the child. And in that time, what we as parents have to understand is part of our role is to teach our children that there is an old nature, an old self that they need also to put to death. And there is a new self that they need to work at bringing to life. So we begin to recognize that this is a role that parents have in the lives of our children. The problem is our society tells us exactly the opposite, doesn't it? I mean, our society tells us that, look, our children are just fine the way that they are. Basically, it's this understanding that they are born good, right? Our children are fine the way that they are. You just leave them alone. They have to make their own decisions. They'll turn out fine. This is sort of the fruit of an old parenting philosophy that goes back to the 60s. And it was this idea that, that parents had to let children decide for themselves. And the example was always, you know, Christian parents, you shouldn't, you shouldn't force your children to go to church and things like that. You shouldn't force them into believing what you believe. You have to let them decide for themselves if they're going to be Christians or not. Well, that philosophy has now mutated to the point that parents are told that we should not restrict our children's desires or behaviors in any way, right? Not in any way. Which, by the way, if you think about it, is a philosophy that we do not even abide with our pets, right? You imagine that kind of pet owner? Well, we're just going to let Rover decide where he wants to poop and pee. We want him to be the kind of dog he wants to be. And yet this is exactly the kind of parent we are told to be today. Let your children decide for themselves. 
To which our Reformed theology screams, no, 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 no. Why? Well, it's because of our sinful nature. We are born sinners. We're tilted in the wrong direction. And left to our own instincts, we're not going to choose what's good. We're going to choose what's in our own best interest. At our first church, um, when we were teaching the doctrine of total depravity, which is basically this doctrine that we're born tilted in the wrong direction, the doctrine that says that in every part of our being we have been tainted by sin, our wills, right, have been tainted, all of that. We used to try to teach that. We used a game called musical chairs. I think most people are familiar with that. You know how it goes, right? You run in a circle around a bunch of chairs, and there's always one fewer chair than there are people. And so at the end of the round, when the music stops, everybody can sit down but one person, and then they're out of the game. You know, a nice, wholesome little game, right? It's not a nice, wholesome little game. You get a bunch of junior high kids playing that game, and it becomes ruthless, ruthless. There are kids pulling chairs out from underneath their friends. There are girls falling on the floor. There are tears being shed. It's, it's general chaos. And the reason is our default mode is not compassion and generosity and kindness toward our neighbors. Our default mode is I want to win, Right? And we hear it every day in our world. Win at all costs. Winner takes all. Losing is not an option. It's selfishness. This is the nature that we are born with. And as Christian parents know, and really, you don't even have to be a parent to know this, Christians know that we have to help our children Put to death these natural instincts. The old self must be killed off so that the new self can rise to new life. But this isn't just true of children, is it? This is true of all of us. And this is why Paul is saying things like, look, this is what you used to be. This is the world that you're coming out of. And you have to recognize it. Your natural inclinations, your natural instincts are going to be to do the things as you've always done them. And so you need to consciously put to death things like bitterness and rage and envy or they will keep rearing their ugly heads. You have to put to death impurity and lust. You have to put those things to death. And what he's saying is we have to keep on putting them to death. The old self needs to be drowned over and over and over again. Friends, that's why in the Reformed Church, when we baptize a person into Jesus Christ, we do it in a worship service. We do it with everyone sitting around watching. Why? Because the baptism isn't just for the person who's getting wet. The baptism is for every one of us so that we are reminded again and again, yes, I have died with Jesus Christ. 
My old self is dead and gone, and I have a new identity in Jesus Christ. In, in the Bible study lesson that we put together uh, for this topic, I think I asked you to listen to a podcast. It comes from um, a series called Groundwork. You can read more about it in the Bible study. But in that podcast, they tell a story um, that John Timmer used to tell. And, and he mentioned that in the old days, in seafaring communities like, like Ireland and England and Scotland, places like that, places where men used to make their living out on the seas to catch fish, it was always known that this was a very dangerous occupation, right? I mean, you could fall off your ship, your ship could sink, inevitably you could, you could drown. And so every sailor, every fisherman... Every, uh, every man in town used to wear a very distinctive sweater with a very distinctive pattern that was unique to that particular man. Because if you were to fall overboard or if your ship went under in those cold, brackish waters, a body, a body could get unrecognizable very quickly. And so when a body would wash ashore, I know this is kind of gross, but... When a body would wash ashore, you would identify that body by the sweater, by the sweater that it was wearing. In other words, these men walked around every day with the mark of death on their bodies. And that's what it's like to be baptized. We carry around on our bodies every day and every moment of every day the reminder of Christ's death. And that in Christ's death, you and I have died with him. And we have died to our own old sinful self. That person has drowned with Jesus Christ. It's over. They are gone. That's what mortification is all about. It's remembering that on a daily basis. I'm not like that anymore. That old self is gone. It's dead. That's what my baptism reminds me of. And now I'm alive with Christ. That's mortification. Let's talk a little bit about vivification. Putting on the new life. The new life that we have in Christ. And this really is where we're headed throughout this series. This idea of rising to new life and putting on the virtues. Why is it so important, do you think, that we should care about the virtues? Why should we care about doing good? I mean, we already believe that, that we're saved, right? We don't do good somehow to catch God's eye or to please Him enough that, that He might want to save us. So why is it that we should care about doing good at all and putting on these virtues. And by the way, when we talk about the Christian virtues and you read them in Colossians 3, you'll see that they're also very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. And in all of these lists that Paul gives us, it's almost as if he's talking about the same types of things and he has the same ideas in mind and he's just giving us sort of an example list. And so you can really put the fruit of the Spirit together with these Christian virtues and you have a whole list of the virtues. But let's get back. Why should we care about them? Actually, there are a lot of reasons in Scripture why we should care. Okay? For one, they reflect the character of God. 
Remember how God says, be holy as I am holy? This is part of that. When we are patient people, we are being like God because God is patient. When we show compassion to the people around us, we are being like Jesus because Jesus is compassionate. It's part of the family uniform. And when we put it on, it shows that we have come under new management. We don't rule ourselves anymore or manage ourselves. We are now managed by Jesus Christ. Another reason we put on the virtues is because of gratitude. We are simply grateful for all that God has done for us in Christ. A third reason we put on the virtues is because virtues contribute to a sense of shalom. Shalom in our own psyche, shalom in our relationships, shalom in our communities. I think we can all agree, right? Um, Truthfulness and honesty uh, are much better in a marriage than falsehood and lies right? Falsehood and lies contribute to breakdown of a marriage and mistrust. Honesty contributes to trust. These things move us in the direction of shalom, and they bless the people around us with shalom. But another big reason for why we should care about the virtues is something that Jesus and the Bible tell us again and again. By their fruit, you shall know them. By their fruit, you shall know them. The Bible says that the virtues are actually proof that our faith is genuine, that we really do belong to Jesus Christ, that we really have been made new. How do you identify, really, the people of Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say about that? It doesn't say you'll know them because they go to church. It doesn't say that you'll know them because they attend life group or Bible study. It doesn't say you'll know them because they sing with gusto or go to lots of prayer meetings. And and I want to be clear, those are all really, really good things. And I don't want to diminish those things in any way. They're very important to us in our Christian lives. But the Bible doesn't say you will know a Christian by how often they raise their hands in worship. It does say that you will know a Christian by his or her fruit. That's how we know. Now, if that's the case, we need to be aware that we can also deceive ourselves with these virtues, right? I mean, we can put on virtues for the same reason we raise our hands in worship, and that's to convince others and convince ourselves that we are someone we're not. So I want to share two things about the virtues that that we need to remember to assure us that that these are the real thing, okay? That they're not man-made, but they're God-made. And the first is just that. The virtues spell off or spell out the character of God, we have to remember. They are not self-determined, okay? It's not a group of people who got together and decided, well, these are what virtues are. And actually, the Greek, the Greek culture in Jesus' time, that's exactly what they did. The philosophers sort of led the way, but if you ever compare Greek virtues to biblical virtues, you'll find that there's a lot of crossover. 
but they're not exactly the same. And that's how the Greeks arrived at these things. Everyone agreed that, that these things are noble and these things are not. And we kind of do the same thing today. There was actually a, an article in uh, CNN back in 2014 um, that reported on a group of atheists who had come out with their own Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments for Atheists. And listen to what the author of this, of this article said. He starts off this way. What if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses had turned to the Israelites and asked, hey, what do you guys think we should do? Considering the Hebrews' bad behavior in the Bible, what with coveting of neighbors' wives and murdering their own brothers, that might have been a disastrous idea. Listen to this. But in our own more enlightened age, we're perfectly capable of crowdsourcing our own commandments. Or at least that's what this new project would have us believe. That's what I'm talking about. Crowdsourcing virtue. In a society where God is no longer taken seriously at all, what happens? Well, society comes up with its own ideas of what is good and what is pleasing and what is not. And friends, we have to be very careful then when we're talking about virtues to recognize that we're aiming for what the Bible holds out before us and not whatever is popular in our day. For instance, I remember reading a Christian author some years ago who encouraged Christian men in particular to put on certain qualities and characteristics claiming that these things would make us better reflect God and Jesus Christ. And as it turned out, this author hadn't read his Bible very well because he wasn't selling Jesus, he was selling something more like Mel Gibson. Biblical virtues are putting on Jesus Christ. His character. And you have to remember as we do that, that Jesus' peers, the people who lived with him on a daily basis, they ended up hanging him on a cross. And so these virtues, while they're Christ-like, while they're God-like, while they're good, we have to remember they don't always make us popular, especially in our own culture. Sometimes they bring us suffering. And that's another way of discovering, is my faith real? Am I willing to put on the character of Christ even if it leads to suffering? The second thing about the virtues that I think we need to remember is that fruit comes in bunches. Fruit comes in bunches. And it's been pointed out many times that, you know, when Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, he, in Galatians, he writes in the singular, not in the plural. He writes as if all of these different things, right? Love, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all of those things, they all make up one fruit, not individual fruits. Now, why is that so important? Well, it tells us, for one, that these fruit are not man-made. 
they are the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We can't produce them on our own. And therefore, if not all of the fruit are present, if not all of the virtues are present, if just a few of them are present here and there, it may be a sign that the virtues we see in us are really not the work of the Holy Spirit at all, but simply they're simply our own human traits, our own natural temperament, okay? I mean, think about this for just a moment. We are almost done. In one of his letters, the Apostle John writes this. He says, if a man says, I love God, but he hates his brother, John says, he's a liar, okay? If you say that you love God, but you hate your neighbor, John says, you're a liar, and, and Tim Keller notes that he doesn't say this. He doesn't say if a, man, um, if a man loves God or says he loves God but hates his brother, he doesn't say that man is unbalanced. He says that man is a liar. And what he's getting at is, is this. If you don't do both of those things in combination with one another, if you don't do both, loving God and loving neighbor, then really neither one of those things is true. Then you really don't love God and you really don't love your neighbor. Neither one can be true. Now think of that in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says that all of these things must grow. All of these things must be produced together. So what does it mean then if my life you know, exhibits just a couple of them. If I exhibit kindness and generosity, but not gentleness and faithfulness. What does that mean? How do I begin to look at that and deal with that? Well, what it might mean is that kindness and generosity are just, they're part of my natural temperament, right? They're part of my genetic makeup, where maybe my parents worked on these things harder with me when I was a little kid. There's somewhat instinctive to me where those other fruit are not the point is that if not all of those fruit are present there's a good chance that they are not the work of the holy spirit they're not holy spirit empowered but they're simply natural strengths let me just give you one example if a person seems unflappable in times of trouble, that may seem like she has the fruit of peace, right? You just can't shake this person. But it could be that the reason she doesn't get upset about anything is she doesn't allow herself to get invested in anything or in anyone enough to care. And therefore, she might look like she's got the fruit of peace, but when you look for the fruit of compassion, you can't find it anywhere. And it turns out that peace is really not the work of the Holy Spirit. Unbalanced fruit reminds us that we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes and really unites us with the person of Jesus Christ. And when we are united with Christ, that's when we get to deeply know His character and understand His character, and we begin to live out that character. One last thing. 
I saw something beautiful um, yesterday, which I can't say all that often. There's a little video going around on the internet. You open up the newspaper and there it was. And it was a, a little scene that showed um, five little five-year-old girls. It was a basketball team, five-year-old basketball team. They were out on the court and they were all hugging each other. It was like this big group hug. And it turned out their coach had told them to huddle up and they thought he said cuddle up. And so they were. And it was a beautiful little picture of what life is supposed to be. Friends, I hate to say it, but the virtues are not going to happen like that. They're not going to happen by mistake. They're not going to happen by chance. For one, they take a lot of faith. Faith to believe that I really have been made new in Jesus Christ. And the old self really has been put to death. And it's going to take a lot of prayer, reliance on God, that he will create this newness in us. But finally, it's going to take a lot of work. It just is. A lot of work. These things aren't going to come just naturally. And, and one of the things we need, therefore, is we need each other. We need to learn from each other. Because you may have the gift, the gift of peace, and I can learn from you what that looks like and what that feels like and where it comes from. And you can learn from my children the gift of patience. We can learn from each other. But what that takes, friends, is a lot of what? Humility. Humility. Humility to say, you know, you've got more of that gift of peace than I do, and I have a lot to learn in that regard. We always say that pride is the chief of sins. It's sort of the source from which all of the other sins come. Humility is that doorway to all of the virtues. When we humble ourselves like Christ, believe it or not, we're in just the right position to start learning his character. That's what we hope to do in this series. Let's, let's offer a prayer to God. Lord God, you have... You have made us new in Jesus Christ and we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you will let that newness flow from us. Lord, may your shalom come out of our lives and bless the people around us. May we grow in character. May we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and in that way may we be a blessing to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, to the people around us. May we live the kind of lives that strangers see and they say, wow, I'd like to get to know their God. Lord, work in us today and in these coming weeks, reminding us 
We're not what we used to be and calling us to be what we are in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.